0: Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend is sponsored by IamLiP.com. Trigger warning. Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend deals with the subject of divorce, child custody, domestic abuse, the attitude of public bodies and the family court. Some people may find the content of this episode distressing. Some episodes contain explicit language. My name is Selina. Who am I? I am white, I am black, I am brown, and I am much, much more. I am a Christian, I am a Hindu, I am a Buddhist, I am a Sikh, I am a Muslim, I am Catholic, and human to the core. I am every person who did what they were supposed to do, leave and tell. I am every person who was re-abused by the system. I am every person who was disbelieved by the police before I even began to speak my truth. I am every person who faced an unaccountable family court only to be silenced by their orders. I am Anonymous Us, and here are our stories. Picking up from the previous episode where I intended to quietly walk Anita in and settle her into her side room. But as we did so, one of her husband's enablers had stepped in front of me at the last minute, ensuring I'd bump into him, only to then shove me back forcefully, causing me to stumble over the shopping trolley carrying all of Anita's paperwork. Although shocked, I didn't say anything, or do what normal people would do, call out and go, Oi! What did you do that for? Or, Ouch! As the metal frame hit my knee, I didn't engage. Because I knew I was stuck. Stuck with a woman who had had the most horrendous panic attack last time she was here. And she wasn't far off having a repeat episode. I was stuck either way. If I ignored them, this would only empower them further because they would know what they were doing was succeeding. I knew my fear would feed them. So why would they not continue? But, if I challenged them, it would have been a case of Who do you think you are talking to me like that? With that air of How dare you be rude enough to challenge my bad behaviour? It's a bizarre thought process, that type of entitlement, where a person believes they can push someone. But who do you think you are to challenge me on it? And I also knew from experience, if I did say something, as far as the courts were concerned, I would have been inviting an escalation of the argument. I should have ignored it. Or, why didn't you tell anyone? Really? As far as the court staff are concerned, especially the security, they don't want to get involved. They just want you to go away. So in that moment, by demanding they act, the victim-survivor becomes problematic. And this time, stood there with Anita, the security guard's attitude was no different. He just stood there, ignoring it the whole time. He saw what was happening. He saw that I was pushed. I called to him inside the building. Are you going to do anything? "'my gaze firmly on him, waiting for any kind of response. "'But I didn't get one. "'He was going with the nothing-to-do-with-me method. "'How was this being allowed? "'We, as in the organisation I work for, "'had rung up in advance and explained that we would get there early, "'so Anita didn't need to see her husband or his enablers. "'They were more than aware that this woman "'was taken off in an ambulance with a severe panic attack "'last time she attended court.' To repeat, we did everything we could to communicate with them beforehand. So surely someone should have ensured the entrance area was kept clear. The security guard should have asked the group, were they in court today? If not, why were they there? There wasn't even a, could you please move aside and let people through? Surely that wasn't much to ask for. And if the security guard had have said something, no matter how little... At least it would have shown the enablers that their presence had been noted. And, who knows, it may have made a slight difference to their behaviour. Let me tell you about a previous visit, when I was accompanying another victim-survivor. I did challenge a court manager on the security staff's indifference. Why were all these people being allowed to attend court? To which, well, they're not allowed to attend the hearing, was the response I got. Just that answer shows you a lack of understanding. It doesn't matter if these people are not allowed in the actual hearing. What happens outside the hearing to the victim survivor automatically affects what happens inside because they are carrying that fearful energy. The bullying affects how they communicate once they're inside. I was then told that they couldn't do anything. It's a public space. This is before COVID. It's a public space is not a good enough reason. If court staff see bullying, they need to step in. So, back to Anitra and I, it became more than clear that the security guard was not going to do anything. So I just politely mouthed, excuse me, as I tried to walk around him. But he continued to stand in our way, blocking our entrance and laughing. It was very condescending. To them, the enablers, this was really funny. It's like when you see on TV programmes a gang of bullies following someone home at home time. They think it's hilarious. It makes them feel big and powerful and brave. But it doesn't matter how it makes them feel. It is scaring me and Anita. Fortunately, other people arrived and needed to enter the court. As the enabler stepped aside to let them in, I quickly took the opportunity to pull Anita and I inside the court. As we reached the security scanning, I couldn't help but ask, Why didn't you do anything? Excuse me? You saw what happened. Why didn't you do anything? I asked again. The security guard completely ignored me and carried on scanning, going for the I'm not engaging with you tactic. And the more he's ignoring me, the more wound up I'm getting. But I can't get wound up and I can't get angry and I can't be curt with him. Because the system is set up, in a way, that will make sure that Anita and I will be seen as the perpetrators, the problematic ones, the troublemakers. So, I don't say anything further. Besides, it wasn't fair on Anita. It only would have caused her to worry more. Because by now she was pleading, don't worry, it's fine, just leave it. Because they are at the beginning of their court process, they're scared of saying anything, in case it has repercussions with the judge. And I knew where she was coming from because I too had been that person who, when she first began her journey as a litigant in person, wouldn't say boo to a goose. I was petrified to bring any kind of attention that could have been seen as unfavourable to me. I was always scared of looking like the problem, especially when, in comparison, their side is being a dream. I don't mean the enablers, I mean the abuser and his legal team. They don't email with tons of silly questions before the hearing. They know what to do and where to sign in when they arrive. Unlike you, who constantly wants to know, will we know when we're called in? They sit in the waiting room quietly, not causing the staff extra work by asking for a private room. And even though it's the enablers that are causing the problem, it is the victim survivor who is causing them unnecessary grief by expecting them to deal with it. Just your presence is an unnecessary irritation for all of them. So, to keep things calm, I didn't say anything more. Naturally, Anita's fear went up considerably when her husband arrived at that point. We were still being scanned through. I turned to Anita. Let's just wait here till they're done, guiding her to the side of the security section. And then, once his side were through, I took the opportunity to take Anita in and show her what she needed to do upon arrival. She kept saying, thank you. I wouldn't have been able to do this by myself with her gratitude full of extra fawning, in case I was mad at her because she had stopped me speaking to the security guard. Of course I wasn't mad at her. Why would I be? I fully understand. I've been there. Why is all this fear with the victim-survivor? Why is the abuser not feeling fearful? Why are they not scared? Instead, he was being treated like a king. There were loads of handshakes and hellos with all his supporters. His solicitors and barristers, who were with him, step by step, walked him through the whole process. His barrister had gone straight up to the usher to hand in some paperwork. Oh, the fawning! Nothing was too much trouble. In the family court, a litigant in person will always be treated like unwanted rubbish compared to people with a legal team. What message did that send out to him and his enablers? That they were more than fine? I want to ask any judge or magistrate, imagine how this feels to the victim's survivor, especially if the enablers are family members. You see, it's not uncommon for family and friends of a victim to stand with the abuser. We all know in Holly's case, her mum supported Ben throughout, because she had been groomed to believe that this was all Holly going mad and being manipulated by Amy. Can you imagine how devastating it is to have your loved ones turn up and support your abuser, then go into a courtroom and advocate for yourself? And with family members, it's not always about threats and bullying. It can also be about emotional guilt tripping. Something that, again, surely judges and magistrates are aware that this could be happening to a victim survivor outside in the foyer. And it's so easy to misinterpret this as Well, your family members are not supporting you, so what does that tell us? Let me tell you the story of Mila. I wasn't there on the day she went to court. A colleague went with her. I heard about this afterwards. All of Mila's family members, her mother in particular, were supporting her estranged husband. This was partly down to grooming from the abuser, but it was also down to cultural and religious ideology, where breaking your marriage vows was bad, regardless of whether the marriage was abusive. Mila was stood in the foyer, because the court refused to give her a private room on the date, even though it had been booked. And her mother came up to her, because in these situations, family members can approach you in a way that no one else can. And the next thing, her mum was laying into Mila, saying things along the lines of how she was ashamed of Mila. Mila had shamed the family, making them all look bad within their community. Why did she have to do this? Her husband was a good man. After all, these little things happen in marriages. And what was she teaching young girls? Because of Mila, other girls will now think it's okay to leave their marriages. Then where will they be as a community? Then what will happen? It was at that point things became nasty. Mila's mum said to her, If I had known that this was the kind of day that you would bring on us, I would have strangled you at birth. Not that her husband hadn't tried it already. But just imagine for a split second your own mum telling you how she wished that she had strangled you at birth, or how God should have killed her before now so she wouldn't be alive to see the day her daughter do this to their family name, or if your husband had beaten you harder, you wouldn't be this out of control. I now dare anyone to say that after hearing that from your own mum, you are capable of going into a hearing to advocate for yourself. You know, Holly never recovered from the shock and pain of her mum not standing with her. Even when she saw Ben inflict post-separation abuse, it was still. Holly had driven him to it. So when you hear magistrates say, hmm, even your own mother isn't supporting you, well, that tells me a lot. How about instead it tells you that sometimes a victim survivor has been abandoned by those who should have stood by them? So, back to Anita and I. After signing in and registering, we were begrudgingly shown our side room. And when I mean begrudgingly, it came with a large dose of, you should be grateful we're even giving you a room. The truth is, the courts would rather not give you a room. It requires too much effort and thought. When I was going through my divorce hearings, I was often made to feel that I was being difficult or dramatic for wanting one. When I went to court the second time, I was told I could ask for a room, and I did try. I emailed the court several times, but they never came back to me. I called them, but I could never get through. So, on the day when I arrived, I asked, was it possible to have a private room, as I found my husband, his legal team, and all the enablers intimidating. To which I was asked, did you contact us in advance? Well, I tried, I said. I emailed and rang. But I couldn't get through, but I was told I could ask on the day. And here's the response I got. Hmm, well you can ask, but we're not obliged to give you one. And then I was made to go and sit with my abuser, his team and the enablers. Do you know when I finally got a private room and a screen? At the county court when the financials were being discussed. Not once was I afforded this in the magistrate's family section. I had four hearings I had four hearings and asked for a room and a screen for the latter three. Disgusting. In 2021, a law was passed ensuring that vulnerable victims were provided with special measures when in court. And that meant a room to wait in, screens in court so you didn't have to see your abuser. The fact that a law had to be passed is very telling. A law to ensure court staff are considerate to abuse victims' needs but you can't pass a law on human empathy. If that's missing, no legislation is going to rectify that. Anita's case was before this law was passed and goes a long way to explain why we had to walk past the main waiting room where he, the legal team and the enablers were sat in order to go to our private room, all the while dragging a heavy shopping trolley behind us. So Anita and I were finally in our room, our side room. Let me explain what that was. It was bittersweet. Yes, Anita was away from her abuser. And yes, if she was really abused and it was really that bad, she should be grateful for anything. But the room we were in was out the back, out of the way, like we were some dirty little secret that had to be hidden from the good people in the foyer, a problem that had to be removed temporarily for the calmness of the court. And all the while, Anita's husband and his entire entourage had the full run of the foyer in public areas. While the room we were in had no toilets and had no tea or coffee facilities, so if Anita needed the bathroom, we would have to go back through the foyer. If we wanted to get a tea or a coffee or a drink, we had to go back through the foyer. And yes, you can ask someone to escort you, but again, you're made to feel like you're a problem for wanting a tea or a coffee, or even a pee. Sometimes a security guard will wait outside, but rarely, because they just don't have the manpower. And this day was one of those days, where there was no security outside our private room. But, law or no law, please do not think for one second that private rooms keep a victim-survivor safe. They don't. Anita and I were sat in our room. She was trying to calmly gather her thoughts. But the incidents outside had already done their damage, so, job well done. Next thing, two men barged straight in. Because it was unexpected, we just jumped out of our skin. My heart was in my throat. Instantly, I got up to say, sorry, you can't be in here. And just as quick, they said, ah, sorry, mistake, and left sniggering, triumphant in the stunt that they had just pulled. It was unnerving. It left Anita and I shaken. Then, shortly after, it happened again. Bang, the door swung open. Oh, sorry, wrong turn. Got lost, looking for the lose and then quick as you like, shut the door and left. I got up to go and find a staff member to challenge what was happening, but immediately Anita was like, no, please, please don't say anything, it's fine. You'll only make it worse. What was happening? I mean, I'd heard of opposing counsel storming in, with the excuse of having to hand over documents, but this was the first time I'd ever seen enablers, with full entitlement and no concern that they were going to get stopped or get into trouble. I knew what I wanted to do, but... In accordance to Anita's wishes, I sat back down. My priority had to be her peace of mind, because it didn't matter what was happening around here. The hearing would still continue, and she needed to be emotionally together to be able to advocate for herself. But little chance of that happening now. She just looked flustered. And if we remember, she collapsed last time. She was barely moments away from round two. On top of which, it was obvious she hadn't eaten or had a coffee. I know, I'd been there. So to repeat to any judge or magistrate, it's not easy to ask a resident parent to turn up for a a 10am start, 9.30 to prep, who's been removed from their home. They're relying on food banks, with no booklet or leaflet to tell them what to do when they arrive, and they are beside themselves with fear and worry, and even a side room isn't keeping them safe. How does this put both parties on a fair footing? It doesn't. Why do you still not get that? Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend is sponsored by IamLIP.com. If you are struggling with any of the issues discussed in today's episode, please go to www.iamlip.com where you can receive further information and help. Disclaimer, the stories mentioned in this episode are fictional accounts based on and adapted from real life experiences. Due to the repetitive nature of the family court, any similarities to any other cases are purely coincidental.